The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Chapter 15 is Jesus speaking, still in his farewell address to the 11 disciples as they were moving apparently from the upper room situation. The end of chapter 14 gives us the understanding. He says, rise and let us go from here, indicating probably that they were making that short journey to the Garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps Jesus spoke these things along the way or as they arrived even at Gethsemane. But listen to his words. John 15, I read verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him is he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you would bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit shall abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. May God bless this, his own holy word. In order to set a basis for this text today, I want to ask you a series of questions that may not seem to have very much in common. First question, how much practical good can a windmill accomplish when there's no wind? Second question, would you drive your car over the 
several miles long Chesapeake Bay Bridge. If you had been informed that years ago when it was being built, structural engineers were not involved in choosing the proper size steel girders? Third question. How much chance would a lioness and the African plains of the Serengeti have of capturing a wildebeest for her dinner if she did not have her amazing hunting skills of stealth, patience, and bursting speed? Well, you know the answers to those questions. Here's an additional one. What can any Christian man or woman accomplish on earth that might count for eternity if we lack the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit? I know the questions seem unrelated, but I was trying to get you to think in several directions. There is a common tie to these questions and answers. Because what wind is to a windmill, what proper steel girders are to a long bridge, and what cunning and speed are to a lioness, all of that and more Jesus Christ is to a Christian. He is everything to us. He's the driving energy, the internal structure, the creative force, the very intelligence behind our living and being as his disciples. And so John could say, or write, not John, but just as a recorder, John was the one giving us Jesus' words here in a single sentence of John 15, 5. Without me, you can do nothing. You're a lioness without cunning or speed. You're a bridge without the proper girders. You're a windmill without wind. Without me, you can do nothing. Now, I propose to just take a couple minutes to first review the flow of thinking. We spent pretty good time in chapter 14, took it short paragraph by short paragraph. This is such an important portion, and of course, 15 is also very important. But I want you to see the flow of what Jesus is having to say. I don't think it ever struck me as much before as as in these last weeks as I've been studying. You know, you can look at something like John 14 and 15 and think, well, here's a a patchwork quilt of various good sayings. They're all beneficial uh, teachings from Jesus, but I'm not sure there's a unified structure. Let me try to impress you that there is, as I would give you a short summary of chapter 14, and then see how that moves us forward into 15. In the beginning of 14, the Lord knew that he was departing for his betrayal and death very soon. He knew that his remaining followers were upset about his predictions that he would leave them, and they could not follow where he was going. And so his goal was to calm their troubled hearts. He says that in 14.1. And to do that, he gives them assurance about a heavenly destination. It's a home. It's the Father's house. The Father's provided place, and he's going there to provide what is needed for them to come. And that was his work on the cross. And he assured them that he would make it possible for them to come there, but they needed to know that he was the way there. He wasn't going to give them a global positioning system to find it. He was giving them himself. And then he went on to say that he himself was the divine, visible 
showing of God the Father on earth. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he said in verse 9. And he further said that once he goes, that they were going to do works that were amazing and even greater in many ways than the miracles that he had done on this earth. Further, he said that fantastic promise in 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And we have to know what it means, in my name, because that same thing is spoken, you heard it again, twice in chapter 15. Then he promised them in verse 15 and following of chapter 14, the Holy Spirit, the one who would be with them and in them, just as the Father and the Son were one, Christ, the Spirit, and his disciples are one. Now, this is a unified message Jesus is speaking here, and it delivers us right to the doorstep of chapter 15, in which he now is going to speak about the ongoing relationship that he will have once he is gone, once he has died and been raised and the Spirit has come to them. What would their relationship be like? We think it's entirely possible that as Jesus and the disciples went from the upper room towards Gethsemane, they may have passed the temple. If they didn't pass visibly near the temple, they certainly were familiar with it. And they would have known that, uh, Jesus knew, that above one of the prominent doors of the temple, there was a great work of art, a, a sculpture or a frieze upon the wall above the door of a huge vine, a grapevine, who was covered with gold. And every Israelite knew that this vine was the Old Testament symbol for the nation of Israel. You get that from a place like Isaiah 15, which God talks about his nation, his people, as a planted vineyard from whom he desired to see great fruit. Well, that did symbolize Israel, but we also knew that by the time of Jesus, for the most part, the majority of those in Israel were a barren vine. There was no fruit. And here's Jesus now saying, look, that important symbol of that God said my people will be a, a vine is going to carry on, but I'm the vine. I am now the true vine. And true Israelites will be those whose life comes from God through me. The theme before us here is that all we are or ever will be as Christians, all we will ever accomplish that will remain when we are gone from this earth depends upon Jesus living out his life in us and through us, just as the end of chapter 14 talked about, the life of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And he's using this vine illustration to make us understand. We, we think best in things we can visualize that just as the gnarled, strong, well-rooted trunk of a, a grapevine puts life into all the branches that go out for many yards in all directions and the, the harvest of the grapes comes through that living vine, so does the life of the Christian derive its strength and its, its very vitality from an organic connection to Christ. Here he's telling us that our connection to him is not a static, non-living connection. We might say, well, you are a building and you're built on a foundation of concrete blocks that is Jesus. He could have said something like that, but he didn't. He chose a living analogy of the vine and the trunk or the main branch. 
Then he also talked about those that have no spiritual life in them and are nothing but dead wood. Well, today, I think most of you who ever hear me preach very often know that I'm not addicted in any way to the theme or the uh, practice of some preachers that every point of the sermon has to begin with the same letter. In fact, I almost never do that. So count me doing the unusual today because I have three points that do begin with the same letter. I want to show you the fact of union with Christ, the fruit that we may expect from union with Christ, and lastly, the fellowship that comes in union with Christ here. First, the fact of union with Christ. Here's Jesus saying, can you, can you picture that perhaps he had it in his mind, or the disciples did, that vine covered with gold over the doorway of the temple, and they could see it, and the idea of themselves as branches moving off and bearing fruit from this central living connection, this trunk. It must have been 7th or 8th grade general science, I think, that planted an astonishing idea in my mind. And I remember the science teachers stressing this because I had always thought of trees. Of of course, I knew they're living things, but after all, they're trees. They don't live. They don't move their arms or talk unless you're in Tolkien and you've got the ants looking for the ant wives, but that's another story altogether. But A tree is a tree, and it seems to stand there, and it doesn't do much except if you went away for five years and come back, you'd say, oh, look, that tree has grown. I'm looking at an oak tree in the front lawn of the church, out the windows that most of you have your back to. And I know it's grown larger in my 20 years around here. It wasn't nearly that big, and yet I've never been able to see it actually sprouting or leaping outward, but it's a living thing. My science teacher, I remember, told us every tree you can see in your yard or wherever, is a vast plumbing system. And you wouldn't believe it, but he said literally many, many gallons, and that's a pretty large oak tree out there. I think it would be in the dozens of gallons of fluid move through the plumbing system of that tree from roots through the trunk, out the branches, to the leaves, back again, carrying nutrients, carrying away waste products. There's an enormous piece of plumbing going on there that you don't think about at all. A botanist will tell you that. I actually checked with one. I said, is that that really correct that gallons and gallons move through a tree? He said, oh yes, absolutely. Well, in the development of our theology here, this is helpful to us. Israel was supposed to be the vine and branches of God. The life of God was supposed to be moving through them and fruit growing. People coming to worship Jehovah God because Israel made him known. Well, it wasn't happening. Israel had withered up. And so Jesus steps forward and says, I am the true vine of God. Now, if you're tracing the I am sayings of Jesus in John, this is number seven. Remember, I am the bread of life. I'm the living water and so on. I'm the great shepherd. I am the true vine is the last of that series in John. And it's a metaphor, a a picture offering us the idea that God's life literally is intended to move through his true people as they worship him and trust in him. Now, this illustration causes a little bit of a problem for some people 
as they make note of the fact of the branches that do not bear fruit in verse 2, and in verse 6, branches that are thrown into the fire and burned. And so people come along and say, well, wait a minute here. What are we saying? Are there some people that are eternally saved, and then their lives aren't very productive, and they fall to the ground, and God picks them up and discards them? No. That's a wrong interpretation. For we know, and your great rule is Scripture does not contradict Scripture. Take a place like John ten twenty eight right here where Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them from my hand. I could give you a list as long as your arm of texts in which the eternal security of the believer is certainly taught. So this idea that there can be dead wood is not telling us that that God makes a disciple and then lets that disciple fall away and and he's destroyed. Well, what does it mean then? We think the correct way, the only sensible way to understand the dead branches of this passage is the idea that they are those who made some outward beginning in Christian faith. Perhaps they professed Christ, but in a false or insincere way in a way where their heart was never awakened. They simply were imitating what others were doing, and they looked, perhaps, like they were true disciples. There was a resemblance there. But in fact, in time, they proved that they were not. They never bore any fruit. They didn't obey Christ. He wasn't alive in them. If they were church members, and they very well could have been, they were nominal members. They were trusting in some outward profession they had once made. They were trusting in a framed certificate of church membership or or baptism, or maybe they were trusting in their pope. We've certainly seen a little bit of that this week. It's possible to do all the outward forms without the substance, without the reality being there, without truly being joined to Christ. So don't be troubled over that dead wood aspect of this passage. It's talking about something we hope you are not, and yet we appeal to you. Are you truly one who knows that Christ has given his life for you, and you have received him as Savior and Lord, and he now stirs in you, and your life derives from him? He's mostly speaking here about real disciples. So you would think, all right, he's going to tell me how glorious it is, how how pain-free and pleasant it is to be a real disciple. Well, look what he does right away. What happens to the fruitful branches? Every branch that does bear fruit, verse 2, he prunes. Ouch. Pruning hurts. Pruning means things I ask God for that are denied me. Pruning means the lessons learned by suffering and sickness and disappointment. Pruning means something I prized that became an idol and got in the way, and God had to move it out of the way. So notice here that he's saying, even you who are truly mine, this is going to hurt a little bit. I've seen people, you have too, cut trees, arborists come, and folks have trees cut. I remember on my my street, uh, six, eight houses down a couple of years ago, they had two huge trees in the front yard. They the house was, I suppose, 40 more years old, and the trees had been there a while. And they came in, I thought, oh, they're having their trees trimmed. And I came back that afternoon, and I was totally shocked. It was just this skeletons of trees, everything that 
you know, branched out or went out or made the, the canopy of the tree lovely was gone. And it was this skeletal, ugly thing. And I thought, well, somebody has to know that that's good for the tree because it sure doesn't look good. It looks terrible. But is, aren't we being told here that it is God our Father who is the vine dresser? He doesn't delegate this job away to a band of angels or something with, with chainsaws. He says, I'm the vine dresser. I know how to prune the one that truly belongs to me, to take away what is not conducive to growth and fruit so that they will be even more fruitful. Well, there's more I could say about the fact of belonging to Christ in true union, but I'm going to move past it here and go to the fruit of it, the second point, the fruit of vital union with Christ. The interesting thing is, if you scan this passage back and forth, back and forth, you say, what does he mean by fruit? And the fact is, it doesn't actually spell it out in so many words what it is, but I think there's the assumption that we can put this together along with other scripture. One of the things is growing character likeness to Christ. For we have the reference in the rest of the New Testament to the fruit of the Spirit. And we've just had a reference to the Spirit dwelling in us in chapter 14. So let's put things together. If the Spirit is dwelling in us and ministering Christ in us, what is he doing? He's going to be reproducing in us likeness to our Savior in our character. The things that a passage like Galatians 5.22 in speaking of fruit of the Spirit gives in a list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I go down every one of those things. And I think none of those things naturally speak about me. If, if I would have thought of my life 50 years ago as, as a young teenager, I was not loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, and definitely not patient. I probably was not kind, I I wasn't faithful, I wasn't gentle, and I wasn't self-controlled. God has to bring those attributes in the life where Christ dwells, and he does. You might say that the branches of a peach tree are expected to bear peaches, not lemons. And if God is alive by Christ and the Holy Spirit in a believer, what is he going to bring? Likeness to Christ over time, gradually. It doesn't happen suddenly with magic fairy dust. And the interesting thing is that other people are probably going to recognize it in you more than you do. If someone says to you, are you aware of these attributes? You say, oh, no, I'm woefully deficient. Well, your spouse, your friends might say, I can see that person growing. I can see that person changing in Christ. Their personality is is gentler and softer and more Christ-like. There's another kind of fruit, briefly, in the fruit of repentance. Remember John the Baptist calling for fruit that proved repentance? What was he saying? Well, you need to prove to God that you're truly sorry, that you truly bow low and say, I'm a sinner, not deserving anything. And you humbly and lowly, in a lowly posture, ask for God's forgiveness. Is that fruit that's in your life? Quickness to recognize what's wrong? Swiftness to go to others, perhaps, and admit wrong, or go to God and admit it. There's also the biblical fruit of witness. We speak of fruit when others come to Christ. The church is bearing fruit. When non-believers come and say, yes, I hear of this Lord and Savior. I want to be part of him. That's evangelistic 
fruit. So those are at least some of the things that are implied by the fruit of vital union with Christ. But then the keynote that is in this passage is centered around this word abiding. Abiding or remaining. I don't know how many times it's used, eight or nine times at least in this section that I read. Now, we know that it's not our effort or our trying real hard that saves us. It's the life of God, the action of God working to reawaken us from our deadness and bring us to trust in Christ. And it's what Jesus did at the cross that we couldn't do for ourselves. So what is this abiding thing? Do I save myself by abiding? What does it mean? I would say to you it's not our salvation that's in view here, but rather what we call our sanctification, our going on with Christ once he's given us his new life. We are urged here not to save ourselves, but to seek after Christ in a passionate, continuing way that would put us in remaining good communication with our Savior. Now, you know the key to any relationship is communication, right? My wife and I know that a task that awaits us, and the clock is ticking on this, and Carol's not in this service today, but we know we have to do this. There's a box in our basement that has dozens of letters we wrote to each other in our courtship time, back when a five or six cents stamp. Sorry, no texting, no tweeting, none of that didn't exist, and long-distance phone calls were very expensive. So we wrote letters, several apiece per week. They actually crossed each other because we were so eager to communicate. And I would answer a question before, you know, they're going like this. We've got to get rid of those letters, lest our kids lay hold of them when we're both gone. Not that there's anything that bad in them, but they're private. Communication, key to a relationship. That's all that's being said here. Look, if you want to abide in Christ and be available for the flow of his life in you, for the fullest blessing of what he wants to do in you, you need to seek this close communion with him. Here's what one commentator said. To abide in Christ means keeping habits of close communion, always leaning on him, resting in him, pouring out our hearts to him, striving to make his sayings and precepts the guide of our daily conscious actions and conduct. Remaining, seeking, holding on so that we would evermore be close to our Savior and understand. That's why twice in this passage, the promise about prayer that seems so fantastic in 1414 is repeated. Ask whatever you will in my name and I'll do it. I told you a couple weeks ago how unbelievable that sounds. It sounds like a a license, you know, you want to drive an Audi, just order it up and God will give it to you. No, sir because it's in his name. It's abiding in the name and the character and the will of Christ coming to know his mind well by the word and praying and praying again and again and refining your requests until they more and more are the requests of Christ. And that takes effort. That takes habits of devotion. It takes a determination to cling to Christ, to stick fast to him, to roll your burdens on him, to not loosen your grip on him. 
of course knowing that what counts in the end is him not letting go of you. And apart from this active immersion of our minds in the things of Christ, do we really believe what it says here in 15.5, apart from me you can do nothing? Human beings can do a lot of things. You may be the most fantastic physician in five states. You might win the Nobel Prize. You might design a beautiful skyscraper. You might run for Senate and accomplish, accomplish great things as a senator. You might be a scientist and find a cure for some type of cancer. You can certainly do things that are not attributable to the life of Christ, but they're all earthly things. And they're all finished when you're finished. And when the stone carver comes and puts the final date on the marker above your remains, whatever you've accomplished is done. But Jesus is referring to things that last. If you would do things that last, that count for eternity, influence other souls, and be the instrument of God in someone's salvation, if you would raise up a young person who loves God and seeks after Christ, how does that happen? It happens by Christ at work in you because he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think we can add nothing that lasts. Third, and in closing here quickly today, there's also a unique fellowship found in union with Christ, and I'm particularly looking at what verse 15 says. I no longer call you servants. The servant does not know what his master is doing. I call you my friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I made known to you. And then he compares it to the close unity of Father and Son and how Jesus has done perfectly what he knows the Father has told him to do. You know, if you were a master of a great estate and you had slaves or employees that were, maybe their job was to take a hoe and, and hoe out the weeds down the row of a half acre, and you just tell the servant, go out there and everything that's a weed, cut it down. That's all you have to know. You don't even have to know what the good crop is that's growing. Just get rid of the weeds. Know what a weed looks like and take it away. Well, Jesus is saying here to these disciples who thought in the beginning, just a, a few moments before, that they were not getting the information they needed. That's why their hearts were troubled in verse chapter 14. That's why they were afraid of what was coming up. That we don't have the information we need. Now he's saying, oh, yes, yes, you do. Because I have taken you away from the distance and ignorance that servants have, and I've drawn you into myself in the unity of what friends know. And friends know a lot about their friends. Friends are informed about motives and plans and goals and ways and means of, of accomplishing things, and that is what Jesus is doing here. He's drawing his friends into a circle of privileged insider information about eternity, heaven, and their life once he has gone there to heaven. You know, you don't have to be politically arrogant in this year of gearing up for presidential elections. Just think we're not even in that year yet. We're more than a year away. You don't have to be politically arrogant in order to realize that you have insider information that other people don't have. You know something about the plans of God 
you know something about the universality of human sin. You know who the Savior of the world is and how to access Him. You know something about God's plan for the future of His kingdom. Let me tell you, many in the Congress, the Supreme Court, the CIA, and the United Nations Security Council don't know the things you know because you're the friends of God. And God tells His friends what He's doing. Isn't that amazing? He tells his friends that there's joy coming. And and think of this. This is the night before the cross. He's going to be whipped in a few hours. He's going to be put through shameful, brutal treatment. He's going to be kicked and mocked and then crucified. But he's talking about joy. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross? There's joy in the knowledge of Christ. There's love. This is, there's, the word love is here a lot, and I'm, I'm neglecting a, a strong enough emphasis on it, I know. But he's saying greater love is no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. He was talking about himself on the cross, of course, but he was saying, you, if you know the plans and purposes of God, you will share my love, and you'll be compassionate. You won't just go out in the world saying, I know things you don't know. You'll be compassionate and loving and caring towards other people that you can serve and and reach out to. Well, friends of Christ, I want to tell you that true Christianity means you and I are joined like small branches to Jesus, the master vine. His life energizes ours, and apart from him, we can do nothing that's really important, nor will we ever become anything that's really important but joined to the Lord Jesus by Christ, clinging, clinging to Christ by faith, by trust, by prayer, by service, by obedience, we will be able to stand and walk and even run in this Christian race that we're called to. Even though apart from Christ we can accomplish nothing, joined to Christ, we can do all things through him who is our strength. Glory be to God. Father, there's so much more to explore here, and it can only be explored by our obedient lives, our praying lives, our trusting lives. Keep pointing us to the source of our strength and life, the source of our forgiveness, the source of our hope, the source of our service, if we are to have any generosity that will do long-lived actions, it will be as you inspire it. If we are to help other people in any way that will change those lives, it must be you that shows us the way. Thank you for the life of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we need not think of ourselves as that dead wood carted away for the fire. Be with us. May your life shine in us. For Jesus' sake, amen.